Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's February 2024. In this episode, we will learn about the use of whole genome sequencing as a routine part of the hospital infection prevention and control program. Several papers that address this topic were published in this month's issue of Itchy, and I'm thrilled to have the authors of a few of these papers with me here today. Joining us from the Departments of Infectious Diseases and Microbiology at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and the Sydney Medical School in Sydney, Australia, are Dr. Andy Lee and Dr. Sebastian Van Hall. Dr. Van Hall is a clinical professor, and Dr. Lee is a senior infectious diseases physician and clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Healthcare Infection Control Special Interest Group of the Australasian Society of Infectious Diseases. We're also joined by Dr. Alex Sunderman and Dr. Graham Snyder from the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Snyder is also the Medical Director of the Infection Prevention and Hospital Epidemiology Program at UPMC, also in Pittsburgh. And finally, we're joined by Dr. Waleed Javed, who is a Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the Director of the Department of Infection Prevention and Control at Mount Sinai Downtown and Network in New York, New York. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David, for inviting all of us and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this important topic, whole genome sequencing. Myself, you and several others have talked about it, and hopefully this uh, conversation will be thought-provoking for everyone. Well, thank you. And, and since we're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so talking about whole genome sequencing, I want to make sure we start out by defining exactly what that is. So what should come to mind when we hear someone talking about whole genome sequencing? What is that? Um, so for infection preventionists and people who will be listening to this pod podcast, there's basic understanding of infection control principles. But we, we do cultures, we do other tests, PCRs and whatnot. Uh, in a very basic form, this is another form of testing an organism. But what it does really is looks at its DNA fingerprint and gives us a little bit better idea of its relatedness to other organisms and its own characteristics. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's you could see it as a tool for grouping bacteria or grouping organisms based on its genetic makeup, whatever that genetic makeup looks like, whether it's RNA, DNA, segmented DNA, but it's effectively trying to extract that DNA from the organism and then sequencing that so that you have the genetic barcode of that organism and therefore able to compare across different the same organism or across different organisms? I like to put it in context. It, it's a way to establish genetic relatedness. And historically, we don't always need a methodology that discriminates as well as this does. For example, if I've never had a case of Canada auris in my hospital, and then suddenly I have one followed by another, and they have some epi associations, do I need to do anything more to know that transmission was that could have happened or did happen? Probably not. If I'm Jon Snow in 19th century England and I see people having cholera, do I need to know that they had uh, genetically similar? Actually, to be honest, he didn't even know what 
that germs are causing it. But putting aside that example, there are times we don't need to have any sort of method to know that organisms are genetically related. The power of whole genome sequencing is that it does it with better discrimination than anything we've ever had before. And it gives us an even more refined look at not just whether they're related, but how closely related. And not just the organism, but I think we're going to talk about this later in the podcast, specific genes. Great. So thanks, guys. And, and Graham, that was you there at the end. I'm going to try to get people to recognize your voices. So that last voice was Graham Snyder. And as you point out, whole genome sequencing has started to get a lot more attention over the past few years for a variety of reasons. And, but perhaps people are more familiar in their infection control programs using some other forms of molecular typing, such as pulsed field gel electrophoresis. And so how does whole genome sequencing compare to some of those other methods? Uh, and why is whole genome sequencing getting so much or basically all of the attention these days? Sure, I can answer that. This is Alex Enderman for all those listeners. So PFGE got pretty famous, at least here in the United States, uh, through PulseNet, which is a CDC-run program on food safety. And PFGE is essentially just breaking down the, the genetic fragments of a bacteria and shoving it into a gel and electrifying it and seeing how big the various bands that were broken down are. And, and by doing that and comparing those band sizes and distances to other ones, it would give a, a rough estimate of the genetic relatedness of these pathogens. And that was kind of like the first mainstream genetic sequencing that we were able to use. Now, whenever whole genome sequencing came into play um, and a couple other typing methods as well, the whole genome sequencing method was able to better discriminate some of the the uh, differences of the of these genes and genetic makeup of some of these pathogens whereas if you look at pfge it would call certain pathogens related but then you would overlay whole genome sequencing on top of that and it would actually break down some of those clusters so some of that data that has accrued you know in the late 2000s it has shown that whole genome sequencing is a bit better at um, differentiating these pathogens than pfge which is why we've seen it been uh, been able to take over I think we've also seen it used for viruses, which we've not really been able to do with some of our other uh, mechanisms that require you to you know, have organism growing in culture, for instance. So I think that's been another advantage, particularly over the past few years with, with COVID. Um, we've seen a lot of use of whole genome sequencing for that pathogen as well. All right, so it certainly sounds like, Alex, that whole genome sequencing offers some benefits over some of those previous techniques that we were using. But is this something that we can easily incorporate into our programs and thinking about what types of resources are needed uh, to perform whole genome sequencing and then get meaningful and clinically useful data out of it? Well, so I think you look at the clinical outcomes on it. That's a, that's a slightly different story when you look at antimicrobial susceptibility and things like that. But for infection prevention, we can use it in what we kind of call a couple approaches. The first is what has been traditionally used is reactive sequencing. When you think there's an outbreak going on, or you want to say, you know, is this truly an outbreak or is it just an anomaly? We'll typically use it at the end of an outbreak, you know, after it's already there to confirm or refute its presence. Whereas an alternative approach is trying to use it in a surveillance perspective, perspective where we sequence regardless of the suspicion of an outbreak. But putting this into a hospital can be extremely valuable for any infection prevention team to say, 
you know, what type of interventions do we need to make? And are we making even the correct interventions when we think there's an outbreak going on? And do we need to correct these to say, you know, let's save our resources for something else? Um, but it, it's not a simple flick of a wand that you can start doing sequencing. Hospitals have different levels of capabilities, whether internal or external, and those are really important factors to consider. Yeah, I, th I think you can think about sequencing in terms of the wet lab requirements. Um, so that's actually generating the sequence, um, which is really laboratory based. Obviously, you need the ISTED for bacterial sequencing. So you need a flow of, you need to know what you're sequencing, that it's the right bug, it's the right for the right patient. You generate the sequence. And then the next barrier, I would say, for actually implementing whole genome sequencing is then what I would call the dry lab side of things, which is the bioinformatics side, which is analyzing the data to get to an answer in terms of well, what sequence type it is, what genes it carries, um, and is it related to any other isolates genomically in my data set? And then in our setting, the next step is the, the, the very close collaboration we have with our infection control practitioners, where we actually sit down and talk about the results because without the epi data painted on top of the genomic data, it's very difficult to be definitive from a sequencing point of view that yes, those two things are definitely related. It, it's almost, I would see it more as a probabilistic kind of question or answer that you're giving, and which then requires interpretation through a collaborative approach with reviewing of patient movement data, epi data, and then you come to a um, a recommendation of whether you think things are linked or not. So, so you can see at several steps along that journey that I've described, there are potential barriers or potential hurdles for implementation or adoption of whole genome sequencing in real time. Because the our feeling is that unless you can deliver it in real time, you take away from the actionability of the technology which in the end, therefore, undermines your ability to sell that technology to for us in our in our setting in Sydney, sell it to our executives who, you know, if I give them a result in three months, they say, well, the patients are gone, the hospital's fine, don't worry about it, and I don't care. Whereas if you can provide that data, and Andy might want to speak to this as well, it's really the real-time nature of that data. And in our hands, we can generate a whole genome sequence report within seven days. You potentially could do that quicker, but at the moment, seven days is um, where we see the sweet spot. I think this has been a great lead-in to a more specific discussion of the papers that each of you have published uh, in Itchy this month. And Graham, I want to start with you because I think your paper is a nice example of reactive use of whole genome sequencing to supplement the investigation of outbreaks or potential outbreaks that have been detected by routine epidemiologic surveillance. Um, so tell us a little bit about your study and the question or questions you were trying to answer. Yeah, we realized that uh, facilities or healthcare systems wouldn't necessarily be able to adopt whole genome sequencing surveillance. That's the second approach, which is you sequence everything in a pathogen cohort and you find 
transmission before it's apparent as a frequency higher than expected or where epic connections are hard to find. So we realized that if facilities weren't able to adopt that, they may be able to adopt the less resource intensive reactive whole genome sequencing as has been described. The question is, we don't know how to apply reactive whole genome sequencing. In other words, how do you pick the moments where whole genome sequencing will be most informative to your investigation? So what we did was we created a process for our organization where infection prevention and control teams, as they're doing their contact tracing investigations for COVID-19 clusters, if they could make a case that they had some uncertainty about what happened, if they had competing hypotheses, or they were concerned that there was transmission that didn't follow our expected patterns of transmission for that pathogen, that they could request whole genome sequencing. And we wanted to see how often that was informative. How often did it tell the IP and C teams about whether or not um, their hypotheses were correct or there was something novel to find or it would change the interventions that they put in place? Great. That seems like important information that we could all learn from. So what did you find when you went and assessed your program? Well, in, in short, it was very productive. Um, we had 17 clusters where the infection prevention and control teams asked for whole genome sequencing. Uh, it, it comprised 226 cases. Uh, 16 of those 17 had a whole genome sequencing defined transmission event. Uh, five of them actually had two or in one case, three different genetically related clusters. In 15 of those, whole genome sequencing identified a transmission pathway when the infection prevention team synthesized their epi information whole genome sequencing. And in seven of those, it was a pathway that infection prevention didn't really suspect. In eight clusters, whole genome sequencing changed our understanding of transmission according to the infection prevention assessment after getting the results, and in eight of them, it influenced what they did to prevent transmission. Now, the question is, maybe we didn't use reactive whole genome sequencing enough. This is kind of analogous to the, if you don't, you know, if you take out nothing but diseased appendix, appendices, maybe you didn't take out enough appendixes, appendices. So in this case, we found it was really, really productive, and maybe we should be using it more often than we did. Yeah, so it does sound like the your use of whole genome sequencing frequently provided your team with information that changed their understanding of the cluster or uh, the outbreak and changed their interventions. Uh, but were there any important limitations of your study that we should know about if we're thinking about incorporating this into our own programs? Yeah, we, we of course can't say what would have happened if we didn't use whole genome sequencing at all. Would we have been as successful as, as we were in controlling transmission of uh, SARS-CoV-2? Or we don't know what would have happened had we had whole genome sequencing surveillance in place. Maybe we would have identified some of those COVID-19 clusters sooner. Additionally, I'm a believer that um, the prep work is really important. So we asked our teams a lot about what were the hypotheses that you put in place? How did you um, structure those hypotheses? I'm particularly interested in how we use data visualization to both demonstrate and describe those hypotheses. So I think the process of requesting whole genome sequencing may have enhanced our team's work in defining the hypotheses. So um, we may have had um, more success by virtue of working those hypotheses out uh, in the first place. So thanks, Graham. And I think now I want to shift the conversation um, away from reactive use of whole genome sequencing 
to the prospective use of whole genome sequencing to identify transmission uh, that may go undetected by routine clinical surveillance. So Andy and Sebastian, your paper describes your hospital's experience with the use of prospective whole genome sequencing surveillance among isolates of carbapenemase producing enterobacter alleys. So I want to start just by asking you what made you decide to establish this prospective genome sequencing program? We, we noticed that around 2015 or just before that we were starting to see an increase in incidence or or detection of carbapenemase producing enterobacter alleys or CPE locally. Um, and this was reflected also in other institutions across Australia. In the past, we had we had low-level endemicity of, of imp carrying CPE. Um, we saw in low levels locally acquired. And we had also imported cases that of patients who'd had healthcare contact overseas acquiring CPE of other types, including NDM and less commonly KBC, which I think is much more common in the US. It's very uncommon in Australia. So given that we were seeing increasing CPE within our institution and also um, other states or jurisdictions had seen quite large outbreaks of CPE associated with KPC in particular, sequencing was becoming um, increasingly used to better characterise the outbreaks and also general epidemiology of CPE. So locally in 2015 at, at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, we decided we would prospect to be, collect all new cases of CPE identified in our patients, whether it was through clinical samples or screening swabs. And those were stored for sequencing in real time through hologenome sequencing of our newly detected CPE isolates. So that began in 2015, and we were hoping that we would be able to describe our local epidemiology, changes in epidemiology, and also detect outbreaks early by detecting transmissions within our facility. Um, and the idea behind this was to do this prospectively, set up multidisciplinary team to discuss the results um, regularly in real time, and then act on those results so that we had actionable uh, results that we could present to the stakeholders, um, including the treating clinicians and also hospital administrators to to better characterise and prevent these outbreaks. And the paper that you published in Itchy this month really describes what you found during the first, was it eight years of your program. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you found during that period? Before I do that, David, I just wanted to add to what Andy had said is we realized that so two other things happened during that time that made us think about doing this, you know, prospectively going forward. One was that CPEs became notifiable in Australia, which gave the impetus for the executives to buy into the strategy because it is relatively expensive. Um, it's much more expensive to, you know, and as Graham said early on, you know, with our low endemicity, do we really need to sequence? You know, that question remains and we needed to prove that sequencing to the executives was a worthwhile thing to do. And the second thing is that Australia has always been an early adopter with sequencing technologies in this space. So 
Although the paper just talks about our CPE sequencing, we did SARS-CoV-2 sequencing in real time for infection control. We do other MROs. So we use um, the paper really just talks about the the sequencing as a tool for CPE um, infection control, but the tool can be used for multiple other um, infection control aspects, which we have published on and have done. Yeah, so in terms of the the results of the study, we we found that we had 141 CPE isolates over that eight-year period. About a third were clinical isolates and about two-thirds were screening isolates. So just to give you a bit of context in terms of our screening locally, we do admission weekly and discharge screening in our intensive care unit for CPE and other multidrug resistant organisms. And within our haematology unit and our solid organ transplant unit, we're starting to see increase in CPE acquisitions there. So we're currently doing three monthly point prevalence and slightly more uh, more frequent screening if we detect outbreaks or transmissions within those units. So as I mentioned, about two thirds of our isolates were screening, but we did find about a third of our new CPE acquisitions were from clinical isolates. And we saw an increase in incidence over time uh, of CPE detection between the in, in the eight year study period, which peaked at around the beginning of 2021 when, when we saw quite a large outbreak within our solid organ transplant unit with NDM carrying CPE. As I mentioned before, our endemic CPE usually carries the IMP gene, um, but we actually had a high proportion of NDM carrying CPE during this study period. About 38% of our CPE carried the NDM gene. I think this was a reflection of that outbreak that we detected in around 2021. The other interesting thing that we found was that about 11 isolates had more than one CPE gene detected um, within a single isolate. And the most common isolate, uh, organism that we detected had a Klebsiella pneumonia um, backbone in terms of our CPE detection. The other thing that we noted that Sebastian might want to expand on was that our turnaround time for sequencing um, results reduced over the study period. And that was a result of a number of di different things that changed over that eight year period. So our turnaround time went from medium of 14, median of 14 days from sample collection to results to nine days, which I think we thought was a good result given that we wanted to use the results in real time to affect inf in, um, infection control uh, interventions. We also detected a number of outbreaks and there were two in particular, uh, two patterns of the outbreaks that we detected and I might hand over to Sebastian to describe those um, outbreaks in a bit more detail. Yeah, so thanks Andy. So the, the, the patterns were very much related to what we thought was endemic versus introduction events. So in Australia or in Sydney in particular, Andy already mentioned that we have an endemic IMP4 that circulates but is also endemic in the hospital and likely from our data in the environment somewhere and it seems to every now and then raise its head um, and we'll pick up a patient that we can link that is containing the CPE that we can link back to the environmental isolate that we found a year ago or two years ago. So that is one of the patterns and the other pattern is effectively you having an introduction event and those 
tended to be the very uncommon genes for Australia. So that would be the NDMs. Um, and we'd have an ND, a patient coming in with an NDM who's really, really sick, lands up in intensive care, has a very long stay, very complicated, so lots of antibiotic pressure. And then we, we've had a dissemination or an outbreak resulting from that patient. And initially, it's very obvious, but then as the paper describes, we then found that that patient who was a liver transplant patient becomes effectively the reservoir of that, that CPE gene. And because with solid organ transplants, as everyone would know, there's lots of healthcare contact, both inpatient and outpatient, that that patient then becomes the potential source of new introductions into the institution. And that's what we found in the outpatient clinic setting, which we would not have been able to pick up if we hadn't had the sequencing done. So it sounds like once again, we're hearing examples of how you learned things about transmission that you wouldn't have known by your routine clinical epidemiology. And, and that led you to make interventions perhaps that reduced additional onward transmission. Can I just mention one other thing? Is Please. that out of the strength we found also was excluding transmissions, right? So we always talk about it in its positive light, but in terms of excluding a transmission event, if you having a cluster of organisms with the same gene, I think is as useful and is actually more useful from the administrator's point of view than finding the linkages because the negative ability allows you to stop doing all those additional things that you'd want to do if you thought things are clustered. Yeah, great point. Um, you can learn a lot in both directions, it sounds like, for, from some of this work. So Alex, turning back to you, you and your colleagues at University of Pittsburgh, including Graham, uh, have published several papers describing your whole genome sequencing surveillance program. And we don't have a whole lot of time to go into great detail, but I think it would be helpful to hear a brief overview of the program your team has developed, um, which is even broader in scope than the two we've heard about so far. Yeah, so uh, my mentor, uh, Lee Harrison, is the PI of the project, and it's an NIH-funded project where we perform weekly real-time whole genome sequencing surveillance of essentially all major bacterial pathogens that are considered potentially healthcare associated. So if you've been in the hospital for more than two days or had some recent healthcare exposure and you develop one of these infections with these pathogens, twice weekly, our research lab is going to go down to our clinical lab, sequence them, perform our bioinformatic analysis in-house, give a quick review of the outbreaks and then communicate them to Graham and his team, uh, like I did late last night, uh, about the weekly outbreaks and potential transmissions that we're seeing. And then Graham takes that information with the IP team and, and does their interventions. And from my perspective, the research that we're doing is, uh, you know, what outbreaks are we finding? And then can we prove efficacy of what we're doing uh, actually reduces transmission and infections within the hospital. And that's the golden question here uh, of going forward. But Graham, I mean, your perspective too, as well, uh, from, from the IP side. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're getting handed on a silver platter. Transmission is happening. And our hardworking infection preventionists at UPMC Presby Shadyside, I mean, we have a ton of information to work on. 
I agree with Alex. Um, what we're, we're aiming for here is to show that not only do we have smaller clusters, but that we probably terminate transmission that wouldn't have happened in the first place because we're putting in place interventions that are fixing other things that have not yet happened. While we're trying to prove that, I would say that one of the challenges is we're finding more that is hard to figure out than I thought we would have. Um, and I know that our colleagues in Australia showed the same thing in their paper. You're like, how did this happen? Where is it coming from? And then we're starting to pull our hair out like, oh, gosh, do we have to go look at the water in the sinks and other difficult to remediate parts of the environment or what kind of connections are happening at other facilities or holy moly, what in the community? Am I going to go culture supermarket meat for Pete's sake? Um, what is it going to take to stop this transmission? But you know what? Go back to the original thing I said, a silver platter of preventability. And that's, it's amazing. I mean, it's just positively amazing stuff to get to work on. Yeah. It sounds like when, if somebody's thinking about bringing this into their program, you really do have to also in, a, in advance prepare for the large amount of information you're going to get and think about what you're going to do with it and you know how you're going to do that. Oh yeah, you're going to get a fire hose to water your garden, Dave. Uh, and you better be ready to be able to handle a fire hose of good information coming in. It's the same thing as diagnostic stewardship. I mean, the, the sequencing is not useful unless you know what you want to do with it and the capability to actually act upon it. All right. Well, we typically end each episode of the podcast by asking our guests to give listeners an action item that can help them improve safety in their facility in the near term. But based on our topic of discussion today, I think I'm going to change things up a little bit. And so, Waleed, you and Alex published a commentary in this month's issue of Itchy, where you posed the question, when will whole genome sequencing surveillance become the standard in infection prevention and control? So with that question in mind, I want to ask each of you to talk briefly about you know, a substantial knowledge gap or challenge that remains regarding the use of whole genome sequencing as a more routine part of our infection control programs. And I think this could be really helpful to the rest of us as we think about whether this is something that we can and should be doing in our own hospitals. So Waleed, since you posed that question in your paper, I'm gonna ask you to get us started. All right, thank you, Dave. So I think the question, even though it's very simple, it is pretty complex. And, and, and getting into the details of whole genome sequencing, now the work Alex and Graham are doing in Pittsburgh and uh, what uh, Andy and Sebastian have done in Australia, either sponsored uh, by NIH or by the government, or there is some incentive. And they have explained that there is incentive uh, that really... Like uh, you have to take it to administration and there's something that you need to get acknowledgement from everyone that it's important to do this stuff. And then what is the meaning of this stuff? That's a that's a secondary issue. What we are seeing in our studies and in studies that have been published recently is that the information is now becoming more and more relevant. And it's not an individual information. It has to be combined, as Graham and others have really nicely put in, it has to be combined with the epidemiological data, with the infection preventionist uh, looking through all these things. And you get bombarded with this information, so on and so forth. But it has to be combined with that information. But the issue really is the ability to get this thing done at smaller hospitals, at hospitals that don't have these capabilities. How do we get to those points? We know there's value to this information, 
We know that our infection preventionists are able to detect some infections. And there's sometimes all of us have scratched our head. Is, is it an outbreak? What's going on? And then we are now like, do we send it? Do we get the data information? Like the fastest most of the places can get the information back is several weeks. There are processes involved. You have to uh, converse with either the health department or others. There is no concrete process to this. So what uh, uh, Alex and I have been discussing, and we're trying to kind of get to the point of uh, how do we make or enable everybody have access to whole genome sequencing within reason? As uh, I would quote Graham again, as Graham put in, like they need to give a little bit concrete rationale or reasoning. Everybody needs to have a reason to do whole genome sequencing, but then when that's satisfied, how do we get the next step? How do we get whole genome sequencing within the time uh, that is relevant? In our study, we got the information back. We found that there was an outbreak of influenza, like 60, 70 people had it. But we got the information almost two months after our initial episode. So it's it, like, what is the relevance then? We had controlled infection already. So uh, there's a lot that we would want to do about it. And I think that's really where uh, we would, we, we want everybody to start thinking about how do we incorporate infection prevention and whole genome sequencing? How do we incorporate all these things? And, pro and possibly, uh, and probably rightfully add um, um, uh, artificial intelligence, some sequencing data uh, combined with some translation of that data into, um, into the ep uh, epidemiology to infection prevention's hand. Great, thanks, Waleed. Uh, Andy, how about you? Uh, so in terms of, um, I mean, we've been lucky in being able to have a, a local sequencing service that is very agile and responsive to our local needs. I can stick my head out of my office door and see the scientist who's sequencing and then one door down, Sebastian is there. So if we have a problem, it's, it's not difficult to communicate that we have a problem and um, talk to the relevant people within the sequencing service to to get timely results back. And as Sebastian mentioned, I think in terms of implementing such a service within a facility, it's important to have the team together, the, the stakeholders, infection control, the laboratory staff, but also um, hospital administrators and the stakeholders in, in, which, in areas where outbreaks occurring so that the communication, the feedback of results is, is timely and is important in terms of actionable items. So I think if facilities are thinking about implementing such a service, I think the communication between the different groups is really important and that can be set up even before the service is, is started because I think laboratory and clinician communication is really important for a number of reasons. The other thing that is is worth noting is that I think I think the issue around what you're going to do with the data. So I think you need to know exactly what questions you're asking before you implement sequencing for a particular pathogen, and then what you're going to do with those results. So we found that um, we were able to feed this data back in real time, and that did lead to executive support for increasing resources where we detected outbreaks. And that was very useful because hospitals have limited budgets and they need to prioritize different spending. But with the sequencing data, it was a really great tool for confirming that there, there was a major problem and potentially increasing resources within a particular facility or service would reduce rates and save costs for the hospital. 
So I think um, having the bigger picture around priorities, what you're going to do with the data, how you're going to feed back uh, the data and having really good communication between the teams is really important if you're thinking about introducing a sequencing service. Great. What would you add to that, Sebastian? Um, I, I would stress the integrated service because prior to us setting up the service, infection control was, you know, we tend to think about these things in a very siloed kind of manner, but I think the the creation of a totally fully integrated service with the laboratory, the genomics, and the um, infection control meant that the actionable data was actioned. And I think that's the key to that. The only other thing I'd like to add to what Andy said is for people who are thinking about doing this is actually defining priorities because my priority at my hospital might be very different from your priority. So for example, VRE might not be an issue if you don't have a big transplant center. You know, So I think defining exactly what your priorities are and what you can or cannot do about it is really important. So one of the reasons why RPA has tackled CPEs is because we are a very old hospital. One of the i.e. old in terms of establishment, but also old in terms of building. And therefore, you know, we don't have as many single rooms as one would hope in a modern hospital. And therefore, our impact is therefore much higher by doing this if you had all single rooms, for example. So I think you need to take it into context of what's happening in your local space and local, because there will have to be decisions about priority about which bug, why you're doing it. Um, and the only other thing I would suggest is um, rather than doing everything, you start off with something manageable, get that entrenched, get that working, and then start thinking about the other things, for example, SARS or flu or whatever you want to do. Graham. You know, our, our fellow podcast guests have really covered all the territory. I mean, you're going to have to make a business case. It'll help when we have evidence and guidelines to do that. You need an infrastructure of experts and the necessary wet and dry lab equipment. Whole genome sequencing is not going to solve the problems by itself. you got to pair it up with other elements of hospital epi and infection prevention. we got to anticipate integrated systems of the future, whether that's uh, with integrated data visualization or the EHR integration or AI, as Waleed uh, astutely mentioned, we're going to find out the scope of organisms for which this um, will will have benefit. And I suspect, as we've talked about already, um, it's going to be more than what we think are the traditional organisms and more than just identifying transmission of a particular species. We're going to have to get down to the layers of resistance genes on plasmids. Um, all It's a lot to think about if you're considering implementing whole genome sequencing. All right. Finally, Alex. Yeah, I think two main points, like Graham said, we, we need to produce the evidence that shows that doing this will actually reduce infections. And doing that in infection prevention is very difficult, proving the counterfactual. If we didn't sequence, did we actually make a difference? Did we stop the outbreak? We don't know. And I think when we think about designing that study, which is something that us at UPMC and me right now is going through, is 
what what are we actually preventing? And when we think about the basics of an outbreak, we think of point source outbreaks versus propagation of outbreaks and how patients move out. Good infection prevention will always prevent the propagation and subsequent transmission as patients move out throughout the hospital. What sequencing can do and interrupt are those consistent point source outbreaks where you have a problem nursing unit, a problem device, and interrupting that will stop transmission. So I think when we evaluate things like this, we have to think about what are we actually preventing and can we have that evidence there? The other things that really need to be addressed before it becomes more widespread is standardizing methodological approaches. You know, if you go to one hospital and you look at a different hospital, they're going to do their bioinformatics analysis differently. They're going to sequence differently. Uh, we need to look at legal and ethical considerations of actually sequencing. Will there be legal implications of this? And ethically, how do we make sure that this uh, this technology will be justly distributed in areas that aren't more affluent and that other areas can actually have ac equitable access to it? And then lastly, also a big topic that hasn't really been addressed is regulation. Do we need to be CLIA certified here in the U.S. for sequencing, or can we do this from a research perspective? Will this be CMS regulated or FDA regulated? These are all big, big questions that you know us as individuals can't really answer, and we need to look to these bigger societies and, and group thinks of experts from multidisciplinary backgrounds can definitely address. So it's a very complicated answer to just say, I hope we can all do this one day, but there's a lot of things still to address, but I think it really holds a lot of promise for the future of infection prevention. Well, thank you all for joining me today. I think you've given us a lot to think about. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. 